1 Samuel. We're going to probably just look at chapter 11 tonight. It might be a shorter night than usual because we're going to have communion as well. And like I shared with you a few moments ago, there is a a picture up on the screen. And for those of you who may be viewing online or perhaps uh, on the radio at some point in the near future, um, basically what I'm describing to you is a a map of, of Israel. And basically, if you were to look, and really the the places that we are going to be talking about tonight are, um, I was looking for something, bear with me, Uh, mainly the the things that we're going to be looking at uh, tonight are going to be uh, Jabesh Gilead. If you were looking at a map of Israel, You'll notice that there is uh, the Sea of Galilee in the north and then the Dead Sea in the south. And the, the Jordan River runs right through the center of the country connecting the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And somewhere uh, just north of the midway point, a couple miles east inside, on the east side of the Jordan, is a town called Jabesh Gilead. And it actually belongs to the town of Gad, or not the town, but the tribe of Gad. And you'll also notice off to the far east of that, to the, the right, if you will, is that uh, you can see the letters Ammon, but that's the land of Ammon, or the Ammonites. That's where they came from. And so as we are looking at this chapter tonight, I want you to just glance up every now and then and take a look at this map, and you can kind of get an idea of where we are going, okay? And so... Uh, Certainly as we get into chapter 11, last time we were together, before we went to sunny Florida at Christmas, (laughs) we looked at chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we saw Saul anointed king. In fact, we're going to see something interesting about Saul. It it seems like he was anointed or, or proclaimed king three different times. The first time we saw him privately ordained king with oil being poured over him was, if you remember, in chapter 10. And in the beginning, um, um, of the, just the first couple of verses, we see Samuel anointing Saul as the head of, king, of the king of Israel and um, the united kingdom, uh, Judah and, uh, and the northern ten tribes, the whole thing. And later on, over around verse uh, 17, we also see that Saul is, again, anointed king by the state, if you will, by the whole entire nation. And they do something really interesting, and I love this about Samuel. You know, God told Samuel that he was to anoint Saul, but as he goes and they meet at Mizpah, which is a, a gathering area, as they meet at Mizpah, evidently by the choice of, by, by the use of lots, and you know what casting of the lots is, it's, it's like a, a chance thing where you, you, know, you hold out three straws and you, you cut them uh, at the top and underneath you can't see how short the straws are and then you pull one and the, the shortest straw is the, you know, whatever they designate it for. That, that's the idea of casting lots. You're kind of narrowing it down and you're letting God be the one who uh, orchestrates all that, and certainly he does that. And when they meet at Mizpah, they do that very same thing. They cast lots, and just to confirm to the people of Israel that God is in control of this, certainly the lot goes to Kish and, you know, to Benjamin, and then to Kish and his family, and then ultimately San, or Saul is chosen. And so this is just further declaration that God is uh, giving them really what they asked for. And he really was the best specimen that any human being could want. 
Because normally when people think of kings, they think of somebody who's good-looking, who's tall. And really, that's about the end of it. They don't really care if the guy can speak. They don't care if he's a a good leader or not. They may not know that, but boy, is he good-looking. He's taller than everybody else. That's good enough for us. And that's honestly good enough for most people. And we're going to find tonight in chapter 11 that they're going to anoint Saul king again, but it's going to be after his first battle when the country, when the nation is really filled with a national fervor. It's really their first battle with their very first king, and it's going to be decisive. It's going to be a great victory, and there's going to be great celebration, and they're going to anoint him again, this time at Gilgal, but we'll look at that. But um, And so obviously we're looking at the career of Saul, which really covers from chapters 8 through 15. And so let's read uh, chapter 11 in its entirety, then we're going to go back and take a look at it. Because it's important that as we read it, we get the context of what's happening here. And so verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Yes, please. Does that sound like a really great thing? This is the covenant. We're going to take out your right eyes. Sounds like a great idea. Sign me up. So verse 3, then the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if no one, if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. And basically, they'd basically surrender their eyes and um, be a reproach to Israel, right? What a great plan. So verse 4, so the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, which is where Saul was born, Gibeah in Benjamin. And all the people lifted up their voices, and they wept. They wept. And so now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people? Why that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And then notice what happens in verse 6. As we have seen in uh, chapter 10 at least two or three times, it says, the Spirit of God came, what, upon Saul? Not in him, but upon him. When he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused, and so he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to his oxen. And notice, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So a total of 330,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came, and they reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And I would be too, because they were outnumbered, outgunned, and now they've got help coming. And certainly Nahash the Ammonite does not know this. He's assuming that it's not going to happen because they were so disjunct as a nation and things were so bad. You know, that's why they gave them time. They're just like, you know, if you can muster an army big enough to come against us, have at it, we'll give you a week. (laughs) Right? So, therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. 
So it was on the next day that Saul put the people, notice, in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and they killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. You might want to circle that verse, because that's probably the best and the last time you hear Saul doing anything of greatness. Right in that verse. Star it, verse 13, or underline it. Let me repeat it. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come. Let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So it's kind of a unique thing, isn't it? When you see a man kind of having this honor bestowed upon him three different times, one was very private, one was very public of the nation, and then another one after his first battle that he won with the armies of Israel, they, they do it again. They do it again at Gilgal. And so we'll look at that. But let's go back to verse 1, because there's some interesting things in this chapter uh, that it's easy to, as you read it, just to kind of glance by. But I think having a, an understanding of the history of Israel is really important. And I would encourage you, as you read the Bible, follow those references. Follow those cross-references. Look at um, uh, commentaries. They'll give you some extra uh, passages of Scripture to, to lean upon so that you kind of get the idea. And I would encourage you, in any time you read the Bible, try not to just read it as a textbook. Think of yourself as being in the story and again, it's not just a story, but put yourself in the history. Put yourself in the moment and think about what is happening. Think about all the people involved. And believe me, as you do that, your Bible study, your Bible experience, your time in the Word of God will be much richer, much fuller, much more rewarding. And I think you'll see tonight why that is, because uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing that we see here. But verse 1, it says, notice, Nahash, the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Now, it's interesting, this gentleman who is an Ammonite, his name is Nahash, and his name literally means serpent. How would you like to have your name Serpent? I mean, what happened when he was born? Did his mother bring him out? You know, most people, when, they, when their babies are born, every baby this happens to, by the way, at Rochester General, wherever they're born, they come out and they're all covered in blood and afterbirth and everything. Oh, he's so, she's so cute, he's so cute, cutest thing you've ever seen, and it really is, especially to the parents. You know, this is this child was made in our likeness. Of course, it's gorgeous, right? But for Nahash's mom to him to come out and look at him, oh, I think I'll name him um, Serpent. Kind of makes you wonder what that's all about. But his name meant serpent, and he was an Ammonite, which means if we were to look at a map of Israel, these are the people that govern the eastmost side of the uh, Jordan River on the other side of Gad and the East Manasseh and Gad and Reuben on the eastern side. Over on the even more east than that is the, the land of Ammon, and this is where the Ammonites came from. 
And these also are the people, if you recall, in Genesis 19, after Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown, remember the angels of the Lord came and they tried to get Lot and his family, his girls and their husbands, tried to get them, and his wife too, tried to get them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they resisted, and they resisted, and they resisted, and finally the angel just grabs them, you know, and, and takes them out. The, the, the son-in-laws aren't, they, they stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah, but the two girls and Lot and his wife began to make the run for the hills because God was bringing a great judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember Lot's wife turned around, became a pillar of salt? And then as a result of, of all of this calamity, uh, Lot and his two girls, they hide up in the mountains, and it tells us, in Genesis 19, that the girls began to hatch a plan, thinking that their history was over, and now they've got to figure out a, a way to raise up seed under their family, under their dad, right? So they, ha they get this crazy idea of getting their dad uh, all liquored up on schnapps, or whatever it is, getting, getting him drunk. And so it says in Genesis 19, and, and honestly, this is a, a horrible thing when, when, you, when you read of it, but you know the thing I'm learning? <laughs> Unfortunately, I've learned this. As some of the most wicked things that, of humanity that are shown to us in the Bible, the reason they're there is not because God is trying to discourage us, but he's basically saying this is, this is what man is up to. Apart from my spirit dwelling in him, this is what he's capable of. And it's ugly. And it's ugly. And we see that certainly here. It says in verse 36 of Genesis 19, it says, Both the daughters of Lot, as a result of this plot that they hatched by getting their father drunk and then going in and lying with him separately, it says that the, the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, which is that, that people group to the south, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And in verse 38 it says, And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So those people living to the east are the Ammonites. And these are the ones that came against Israel. The, the illegitimate sons of Lot. And I find it interesting that everything east of the Jordan River ultimately had a lot of problems. But, I mean, certainly those who went into the promised land had problems too, but they followed the Lord and believed the Lord, and they went into the promised land. And these other tribes, you know, Reuben down in the south, Gad, and then the half-tribe of Manasseh, they, they were content on being on the, right, on the right side, on the east side of the Jordan. They were the first ones, by the way, to be picked off by the Assyrians. The first ones. And notice now, so this Ammonite, Nahash, the product of this incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter, says in verse 2, that Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them. And he says, on this condition, I'll make a covenant with you. Because they wanted peace. They realized they were outnumbered. They tell Nahash, look, we'll make a covenant with you, whatever you want. And this is what Nahash said to them. On this condition, I'll make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. What a horrible thing. The right eye, the right toe, the right thumb, these were all significance of, of power and strength. The right hand, the right side, the right eye, the right thumb, the right big toe. These things were always in significance. And so they're going to take out their right eye, and this would really be a reproach to Israel. But you have to, under, you have to ask yourself, why all this hostility? Why are the Ammonites so hostile toward 
these people. There's probably more than one reason to this, but there's a truism about the Near and Middle East, and that is people don't easily uh, forget what has happened in the past. And ancient national skirmishes and wars, all that hatred that is still, it's just like right under the surface, right under the surface, easily ignited by just one comment, by one action, Things can get heated and battles can happen all the time or, you know, very quickly. And have you ever met somebody like that or, or nations that are so bitter? You see that with the Israelites and the Palestinians or so they're called. It just, it, it's, the, 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 there's so much bitterness there. It doesn't take much for a firefight to kick out, at least it used to. But notice what, the reason this hostility is there is you remember in Judges chapter 11, and you may be wondering, what is Judges chapter 11? Write that down in the margin of your Bible, because this is when Jephthah, if you recall, who was a Gileadite, who was one of these men born near Jabesh Gilead on that side of the uh, Jordan River on the east side, he lived in a town and he had brothers and his father had had an illicit relationship with a, with a prostitute. And thus, Jephthah was born. And so he was an illegitimate son. His other brothers didn't look at him. Uh, they looked at him with disdain. But Jephthah had one thing going for him, and that is he had a band of marauders. He had a big band of men, and they would go out um, and, and do raids and things of that nature. And so now, when the Ammonites are coming, uh, or, or I'm sorry, when the um, Ammon comes against the same area that we're talking about tonight, Jabesh, or, you know, that area in Gilead, they, they come to Jephthah and they said, hey, will you help us out? And he's like, you mean you've been castigating me and casting me off from society because I'm an illegitimate son? And now because I got a band of guys who know how to use knives and spears and everything, now you want my help? And they said, yes. And he says, will you make me a king if I deliver you in your battle? And they said, finally they acquiesced, Yes. We'll do that. So he does. Jephthah and the men come, and they really do a number on the Ammonites and just really take care of business. And so we can see in this battle that Jephthah had against the Ammonites was at least 150 years prior to what we're looking at historically tonight in chapter 11, about 150 years. So 150 years have passed by, and, and, and the animosity is still there. It's not, very, it's not uncommon to see this kind of thing, is it? between nations, between people. 150 years go by, and even the English and the French have a problem, you know, or even the English and Americans sometimes can have problems. You know, certain nationalities just don't get along. But notice in verse 3 with me, it says, Then the elders of Jabesh said to Nahash, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. We will come out to you. This sounds weird to us, and it actually did to me as well. But one thing we have to remember is that ancient warfare was very brutal. Ancient, ancient warfare was brutal, but yet there were rules of engagement. There was an etiquette about battle back then. There was an honor in battle. And, and so these men from, Jab, or from Nahash and the Ammonites... You know, the, um, the, the elders of Jabesh said to them, you know, hold off and we'll see if we can get help. And these Ammonites were so confident that they wouldn't, number one, be able to get help. And even if they were able to muster a handful, they would still be outnumbered by the Ammonites and be destroyed. And so 
The uh, Ammonites said, fine, we'll give you seven days, you know. Feeling in their heart, there's no way they're going to get this done because the whole nation is in such disarray, morally, in decline. And so the messengers, verse 4, they came to Gabeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people uh, uh, lifted up their voice and they wept. And you might ask yourself, why are they weeping? I mean, they're from a tribe on the other side of the Jordan, Why are they weeping? Why, why is Benjamin weeping for what happened over there? The lives of the people of Gabeah of Benjamin and those of Jabesh-Gilead from the tribe of Gad, their lives, their history is intertwined. And you may be asking yourself, what do you mean? Well, it's significant because it is very possible that Saul, all the men of Gabeah, uh, and in fact, all of Benjamin's matriarchs, their mothers, their grandmothers, maybe, maybe even their great-grandmothers, were from Jabesh Gilead. So Saul's own mother or grandmother, or perhaps her, even his great-grandmother, came from Jabesh Gilead. If you remember, and again, I think this is interesting to look at, in Judges chapter 19, I want to summarize for you really quickly. It won't take that long. The three chapters in Judges 9 through 21. And if you remember in Judges chapter 19, there was a Levite who lived in Ephraim. And he uh, came down. His, he had a, a concubine who, was, who played the harlot on him. And she went back uh, home to Bethlehem from Ephraim. She went down south to Bethlehem. Finally, the Levite comes after her and finds her at her father's home where she used to live. And so he's talking with his father. He wants to bring his concubine back home with him. And remember, this guy's a Levite. And so finally, after several days of the father encouraging him to stay, just bestowing upon him great hospitality, stay another day, stay another day, stay another day. Finally, he stays another day, the fifth day, I think it is, and he's like, you know what, I'm not going to stay another night. It's already approaching darkness, and we, we're going to go. We're going to go. So that's what he does. Him and his concubine and his servant, they take off. They go, south, they go north now, and as they're leaving Bethlehem, Jerusalem, or Jabus at the time, was just a, little, just a few miles miles north. And so they go up to Jabus, who was occupied by the Jebusites at that time. And the servant says, let's go into Jabus. And, and uh, the Levite says, no, let's go a little bit further. They go up a little further. And finally, it's getting dark. They pull into Gabeah. And while they're in Gabeah, a really nice man gives them lodging. And during that night, just like in Genesis 19, as this man and his servant and his concubine are in this house of this very kind man from Gabeah in Benjamin. Some of the men of Belial, literally men of the devil, um, these men were homosexual men. They come pounding on the door, just like we see in Genesis 19. They demand to know him intimately. They, they, they want to take advantage sexually of the man, of the Levite. And so finally what happens is they give to the mob pounding on the door, they give them the, the concubine who had been playing the harlot. They give them to, her, to this mob, and they abuse her all night. In the morning, they wake up. She's laying there dead at the threshold of the door. The Levite takes the woman, and he puts her on his donkey. He travels further north to his place there in Ephraim. And he's so incensed about what happened to Gabeah, he does the horrible thing. It tells us that he takes out a knife and he cuts her into 12 pieces. 
This is like the most, this is like uh, NCIS, isn't it? And he sends a piece of her to each of the 12 tribes. And then all Israel are so incensed, they gather at Mizpah and they make an oath at that time when they all gather together because they all got a piece of this poor woman. They gather at Mizpah, they make an oath that they would not give their daughters to wife of those of Benjamin. So they make an oath. We're not going to give any of our sons, any of our daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel goes against Gabeah. The whole, the whole country goes against Gabeah, this town in Benjamin. And they go there and they say, give up the men in Gabeah who did this crime. And of course, Benjamin, they are just like, no way, we're not giving up anything. They could have just handed over the couple of men or the small mob and this whole thing would have been averted. Do you understand? This whole battle would have been averted if, they, if Benjamin had done the right thing. If they would have just handed over the guilty party, probably 12 or who knows how many would have died, and it would have spared all the bloodshed that you're going to read about later. And so the men of Benjamin didn't do it. Instead, they went to war with all of Israel. And at first, Benjamin, believe it or not, is actually overcoming this, the whole nation, right? They're actually overcoming. So they go out and battle three different times. Finally, on the third attempt... The Israelites finally have victory over the, over the Benjamites. And so when they realized, and they, and they slaughtered them, and so the, the children of Israel defeated them, so much so that only 600 men of Benjamin survived, and they had no wives, because everybody was dead. Only 600 men survived. That's all that was left of the tribe of Benjamin was 600 men. So when they realized, all of Israel, that a tribe of Israel might be vanquished, they asked, who did not come with them to battle? And the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the tribe of Gad did not come. And so it was this men of Jabesh-Gilead, now because of their anger, they're like, all right, somebody's going to pay for this. Sounds like, a real, sounds like a typical guy thing to do. Who didn't come with us to the battle? Jabesh-Gilead. Well, let's go after him and kill them, right? And so they go. They go. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the tribe of Gad did not come, so they destroyed all the men and the women and the children of Jabesh-Gilead, spared only 400 women who were virgins. And remember, so now they give those 400 virgins to 400 of the 600 men from Jabesh. So now you've got 200 men from Benjamin who don't have wives. And so they concoct this plan to steal wives because they've made a covenant, an oath, to not give their wives to any of these men. They make, a, they make up this plan where they said, um, well, listen, n- nobody is going to give you wives, but what you can do is go up to, uh, go up to, um, what was it, um, go up north and uh, to Ephraim, and they are going to have feasts, and the women will come out of the towns, and when they do come out of the towns, catch them and take them. So they're going to go catch wives. So the 200 men who still have, don't have wives... They go and they fetch, they steal them, they kidnap them, and they become their wives. And evidently, they're okay with this. And it also gets them out of the oath because they didn't give them to them because they were stolen from them, right? And so, so this is the connection that we have. And so really, from this point onward, in Judges 19 through 21, you see how the lives of the Benjamites and those of Jabesh-Gilead, how their lives were intertwined because the, the, the mothers, those 400 virgins... And, and some from Ephraim, 200 from Ephraim, they all came into uh, 
uh, Benjamin, and they had sons and, and their sons and daughters. And it's very possible that Saul's mother even probably was more than likely from Jabesh Gilead or Ephraim. And so their, their, their worlds collided, and they had a, uh, a meaningful relationship with them. So it was very common for them to be upset about what had happened because they have history. So in verse 5, it says, Now there was Saul... Uh, coming from the herd, from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they said, and they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. And notice that the Spirit of God came upon Saul. This equipping from God was not the fact that Saul was necessarily born again, but the Spirit of God came upon those in the Old Testament at different times to accomplish different means. But the Spirit of God did come upon Saul at different times to empower him for this kingly rule, this kingly role that he was going to have. And so, verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen, he cut them in pieces, sound familiar? And, and, and sent them, just like the... They did in, uh, in Judges 19 and 21. They sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to this oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And although some have said that this is an, an act of leadership on Saul's behalf, I really wonder if it really was. I mean, it could be. But I think Saul could have probably done some, some things differently he probably could have just sent a letter to all the tribes. But why does he got to threaten them and, and say and, and, and take a piece of the oxen and send it to them like happened with the, with the, with, 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 um, the Levites sending the 12 pieces? You know, Was it really necessary to, to do that, threaten them? Does that sound like the Spirit of God to you to manipulate the people to come to battle for him by sending pieces? And if, if, if you don't do this, we're going to do the same thing to you. I, that, I don't know. I don't, that doesn't ring true to me. So I, I think in my own thoughts, and I may be wrong, but I think Saul, this was a part of his flesh that probably wasn't of God at all, because I don't believe that threatening and manipulation was of the Lord. In fact, what does it say in James? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, he could have sent a letter and probably gotten just as many people to come to the, the thing with him. But Saul did a similar thing to muster an army against the Ammonites that the Levite in Judges 19 did that ultimately incited judgment upon the tribes of Benjamin. So a very similar tactic. So let's look at verse 8, and it says, When he numbered them, and Bezak, the children of Israel, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So 330,000 men. Now, one thing, as we look at this, um, if you were to look at the Septuagint version of the Bible, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, one of the things you're going to find in, in the Old Testament is sometimes there's problems with numbers, especially when uh, there's, there's copies involved. The original scriptures were flawless, but when, when copies were made from them, it was, it's very easy when you're making a number in Hebrew, from what I understand, just a little small little mark can mean a difference between 50 and 500. And so it's very easy for numbers to be 
inaccurately done. So when you run across numbers in the Bible and you compare them like in Chronicles and Samuel or Kings and you start looking at different numbers like oh, they don't really match up, understand that that's probably what's going on. There's, I've actually got a book, it's called The Mysterious Numbers of the, of the Kings of Judah um, that Edwin Thiel had put together. It's a really fantastic book, but it's not something you'd probably want to look at unless you're really curious. But just suffice it to say that there can be small little errors and copyists and so different numbers because the Septuagint records a higher number. Not a big deal. It's just something in passing to be mindful of. So notice in verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were naturally very glad because now they've got an army. They were very small, but now they know the men of Benjamin from Gabeah are going to come and they're going to help them. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we will go out to you, and you may do with what us whatever seems good to you. And so the men of Nahash, of Ammon, they're thinking, these guys are done. We're going to take out their eyes, and they're going to be a, a reproach. And so this gave the Ammonites a, a false sense of security. And you can understand the, the mental warfare here. Um, you know, when you've got something up your sleeve that your enemy doesn't know, it gives them a false sense of security. So these guys are thinking, this is going to be an easy battle. These guys are going to come marching out. We're going to have our way with them. But they're going to be surprised because an army was on its way, unbeknownst to them. And you know, for us, as we look at this tonight, I want to encourage you tonight that help is on the way. Help is on the way. We see this in Revelation. We'll see it on Sunday when we look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Believe me, help is on the way. Do you know that? Help is on the way. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He is the greatest help. He is the helper. What does the, the Bible say? He's the paraclete. He's the helper, the comforter. But there is help coming on the way, folks. Not only for just us, but for the whole entire world, for those who believe in Jesus. Help is on the way. He's coming very soon. He's coming very soon. Don't get discouraged. Your king is on his way. Can I get a smile? Everybody smile. Yeah, even a clap is good. You know, you can even dance in the halls. You know, Jesus is on his way. He is our help. And so it was, verse 11, on the next day that Saul put the men in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp. Notice, underline this, in the morning watch and underline three companies. That'll make sense to you in just a minute. But underline three companies, underline in the morning watch. And what happened? They killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. So as the sun is not even at noon yet, they are having a great victory over their enemy. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were together. And see, this is, um, is interesting because this was Saul's first battle as king. And I had you underline those things about it being in three companies and also in the morning watch. If you underline those, put in the margin of your Bible, Judges chapter 7. Because when you look at Judges chapter 7, again, just quickly, what happened there? You remember when Gideon went out against the Midianites and the Amalekites. Remember, he had a big army, and God says, you got too many, too many guys. I'm going to give you a, a, something to do to whittle down the size, and, and I'll take the real 
faithful, faithful, you know, faithful warriors with you into battle. And it came down, there was only like 300 guys after this test that God had devised. So here's Gideon with 300 men going up against several thousands of men. And you remember what they did. Gideon divided the hundred or the three hundred into three groups, three groups of a hundred with the pitchers and the, and the torches. Remember that inside the lanterns and, the, and they'd smash the lantern and the light would show and then they'd give a shout and, and this really confused the enemy. It was psychological warfare. And notice that Saul in his very first battle, he pulls the same thing. He catches the enemy off guard. He goes in three companies. He does it in the middle of the night. They say the morning watch is somewhere between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So this is the darkest part of the night. And these guys are on the march, unbeknownst to the Ammonites who are thinking, boy, the, when the sun comes up, this is going to be an easy victory. And if they could only see in the distance, if the sun was up, they could probably see the dust rising as the army was approaching, right? Can you picture it in your head? I, don't, I love to do that as I read the Bible. I actually picture it in my mind, and it sticks there, and it's such a wonderful thing. So verse 12, it says, So the people... Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And so it's interesting. After they have this great battle against the Ammonites, they're victorious. It is like a, it's like a revival in the, in the nation of Israel. They got their first king, their first battle. There is a big celebration. You understand what that's like? Maybe you've had a great victory. Something really special in your life has happened. And everything is just like, wow, it's just jubilance. Mass jubilance. Everyone is excited. And that's the way they were. They were on a high with King Saul and this victory. And they foolishly now, they they, want to kill the men who originally didn't want anything to do with Saul. Do you remember what happened when Saul was anointed king by the people? It tells us just in the chapter before in verse 25 in chapter 10. What did it say? It says that Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, explaining what your king, which is a bad thing for you guys. You shouldn't be asking for a king. God was your king. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with your head? What is wrong with you? (laughs) And so Samuel explains to them the behavior of royalty. He wrote it in a book, laid it before the Lord, and Samuel went away, and the people went away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men, notice, went with Saul, whose hearts God had touched. But notice verse 27 of 1 Samuel 10. But some rebels said, how can this man save us? And so they despised him, and they brought him no presents, no gifts that day. But he held his peace, Saul did. These are the men that now they want blood lust. Who are those men? You know, because they're all pumped up with excitement. We got this great king, this great battle. Where are those guys that said Saul was nothing? Bring them here, we're going to cut their heads off. Can you see it? In their zeal, they're just like, they're not done with blood yet. They, they want to finish this thing off right now. They want their pound of flesh. They were greatly zealous after the victory, but it was a misguided zeal. Do you know what misguided zeal is? This is a picture of it. When you're all excited and you're just so full of the flesh that you forget what you're supposed to be doing. You forget doing the right thing. You just follow your own feelings. Feelings are very dangerous. Be careful of your feelings, folks, especially when you're angry. Oh my, I've gotten myself into so much trouble with misguided zeal. When you're angry, you got to really be careful. Something I'm still learning. 
But in Leviticus chapter 19, what does it say in verse 17? Were they to hate these guys? Were they to get bloodlust satisfied? In Leviticus 19, verse 17, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. And what were they doing? They were hating them. You shall, not, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. And what are they doing? They're doing that very same thing. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Boy, they're doing that right now. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There's the example. There's the exhortation. And now these guys are on a buzz from all the victory. They're like, let's just kill these guys. Not even realizing they're breaking the law. Breaking the law. Misguided zeal. And there is, there is always perhaps more danger for us after a victory. After a victory. When you're, we are more prone to the flesh after a victory than when we are going through something tough. Because when you're going through something difficult, chances are your antenna is up. You're very careful because you know you're in the battle. It's like when soldiers go to battle and they're in the, in the woods or they're in the forest or the jungle, they're looking around. They're sight, they're, everything is heightened. Their sense of hearing, they're, they're quiet, they're listening for a twig breaking. They're on, they're on guard of the enemy. But what happens when we have just been off a of victory? We kick back in the hammock with a drink. We have lots of idle time on our hands. We deserve this time in the flesh, right? And see, the devil doesn't care when and how he does it, but it's always, he is always looking for those areas when we don't have our guard up before he springs his trap. And that's just the way the flesh is. And this requires us, doesn't it, to walk circumspect. Circumspect, it means to look around and, and to, be in, to be seeing all, all around you and to know that you're to live a circumspect life, knowing that you are a fishbowl. Whether you like it or not, as a Christian, you need to walk circumspectly because everyone around you is looking at your life, especially once they know you're a Christian. They're, they want to know if you're the real deal. They want to know if you're the real McCoy. <laughs> and so they're looking. In Ephesians 5, 15, it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. To walk circumspectly. The devil doesn't care. After a victory, he loves to spring his trap. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, or 16 really quick. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. This is a, uh, one of the lessons of Peter, which I think we can all understand, and perhaps you've been in a situation like this. I know I have. And it's exactly relatable to what we're looking at now. They've just had this great victory, and now they're going to step right in it. They're going to step right in the stuff on the cement, right? <laughs> they're going to step in the camel dung. They've just had this great victory. But you know what? We are all the same. Isn't that what the Bible says? The Lord fashions our hearts alike. He knows that we are dust. We're just... Apart from him, we are just, we are a complete mess. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why I need Jesus. And we're going to see Peter doing the same exact thing that we see in these guys. And it's no, no different than any one of us. Notice with me at Matthew 16, beginning in verse 15. Remember, as Jesus takes them up into the um, Caesarea Philippi, where there was a, a center up there. When we go to Israel, you visit this place where this was actually happening. He said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? Because the question was, who do you say that I am? Uh, you know, and so Simon Peter, 16, verse 16, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And boy, did the bells go off and the lights go off and all the cash came out of the little hole at the bottom. <laughs> you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I will also say to you that you are Peter, you are Petros, but on this rock, or Petra, upon this rock, this truth that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, this huge boulder, this huge mountain, upon that Petra, I will build my church. And guess what? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you not only that, but the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. What a great moment, a high for Peter. He finally got it right. I find myself like this. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Lord, I finally did something right. He's like, just give it a few minutes, Rob. And that's what happens here. Notice verse 21. From that time, Jesus then begins to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and he must be killed and raised the third day. And so Peter, now on this high of this having the keys of the kingdom, blessed are you, Simon Marjona. You're just, you're, man, you are the, you are, you should be president. You're so awesome. You've got all this going for you. You need a cell phone and, and, a, and a, you know, a really fancy car with leather interior made of Corinthian leather from the island. So Peter is on this thing. He's like, oh, no, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. I'm your man. I'm your right-hand guy. I'm not going to let that happen. And what does it say? Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. How far did Icarus fall from the stars? As he was soaring up and his wings got melted by the wax and then, sorry I'm bringing in Greek mythology inside of the Bible, but the idea is that he's falling. <laughs> he was up at this height and now he's just falling to the earth. Pretty horrible thing. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I'm sure, that I wonder if Jesus was looking right at him or whether he was looking off to the side and saying, get behind me, Satan, for you don't savor the things of God but the things of man. And so Peter, just like the, the men here of, of, of Benjamin, so excited. And then the very next moment, they, they do something so hideous. So this, verse 13, circle this, underline it, put stars by it, because this is the first and the greatest moment, and unfortunately also Saul's last great moment. Because notice what he said. This is so biblically wonderful. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. That's the first great thing he said. And the second thing he did was, for today, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Wow, he gave the Lord the glory. They didn't raise their banner and put Saul up on a seat. Man, he's the guy. He's the guy. You know, they didn't do it. Saul said, you know what? No one's getting hurt today. God gave us this victory. And that was the first and the last great thing Saul ever did. From this moment onward, you're going to see Saul's life slowly, slowly fade to black. 
But this was it. Mercy and truth was on display. And mercy, he didn't allow the men to be put to death. In Numbers 14, verse 18, it says, The Lord is long-suffering. He's abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, it says in other portions. Proverbs 3, verse 3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the table of your heart. Proverbs 14, 22, do not go astray who devise, or, I'm sorry, do they not go astray who devise evil, but mercy and truth belongs to those who devise good. So now in truth, in mercy, he, he doesn't allow the men to be killed, and in truth, he acknowledges who the true victor of this battle is. It's God Almighty. Remember, the battle always belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. Your battle right now, our battles, they all belong to the Lord. Do you go before the Lord and say, Lord, help me in my battles? Or do you try to figure them out in your own flesh? So often we do the last. We do the latter. We try to figure it out in our own strength to, make the, to win the battle. First place we should go is our knees. And I, I need to learn this because I, I, there's so many times that I don't do this. I go to the Lord last instead of first. I try to exhaust all my energy and then and he's just, well, why didn't you just ask? I would have just done something. <laughs> because I'm an idiot, Lord. And you can almost hear the spirit going, amen to that. He really is an idiot. Thank God he's saved. This guy's keeping me up at night. My guardian angels are running overtime. They're getting time and double time and a half because I'm keeping them so busy. But the battle belongs to the Lord. You remember in Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath, I loved it. David said to the Philistine, he said to Goliath, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, I love this, I love this. Oh, I'd love to see, go back and watch the video. Lord, can you just rewind the video for us? He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I just, I just pictured David with a snarl on his face, you know, his upper lip doing that. I just, oh, this is such a manly chapter. Every man is going, yes, and all the women are going, we just please get over with it. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you, and I will take your head from you. This little guy and this giant full of armor, got an armor bear coming out front. David's like, I'm going to do this to you. And then when I'm done doing that, this is what I'm going to do to you. And I'm going to do it in the name of the Lord. And this guy's going, <laughs> let's see you do it, short stack. And David gets out that rock and he starts to wing, he starts to tour and he takes off toward him. I just love it. Uh, every time I, every, you know, I, I think every time I share this, I get so pumped up. I get so excited. Forgive me. Will you forgive me? Say amen. Forgive me. Forgive me. Richard, you forgive me for that? <sighs> yeah. And he, no, no, he says, I will strike you and I'll take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. It's going to be all you can eat chicken. And then all the earth shall know that there is a God in heaven. And then all the assembly shall know that the Lord, Jehovah, does not save with sword and spear. Notice what he says, for the battle is the Lord's. David didn't even have confidence in himself, even though he could have confidence with that sling and stone, because boy, was he good with it. As he was out there in the fields and those, the bear and the lion would come after one of his sheep, he'd take a rock and stick it in there and he would just whack and knock that thing. And just 
Knock that animal right out. The battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. I love the zeal, the confidence. You know, it almost seems to most people that he's being really cocky. But you know what? I think you can be with the Lord. Not your own strength and his strength. You can boast in the strength of God because it's truth, isn't it? Isn't he all-powerful? Isn't that what the Bible tells us? He's all-powerful. So you can boast in it, Christian. I love what it says in Proverbs 21, verse 31. It says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the deliverance is of the Lord. But deliverance is of the Lord. Have your armies, have all your big horses and all the, you know, big guns with the little lights on them. You know, crimson trace, little red dot on Goliath's forehead. You can do all that stuff, but the deliverance is of the Lord. And see, these that we see in verse 13 here, these are good traits of a good leader. Like I said, it was his first and last best moment. But Saul would quickly become unhinged as his disobedience to God, and he would ultimately come unhinged because of his great jealousy for David. Notice in verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. Because now they're so excited. They got this big battle. Let's go to Gilgal. Remember what Gilgal was? That was the first city they came to when they, when they came over into the promised land, when they were coming through the desert. Remember, coming up from Egypt, going through the, the desert, and they cross over the Jordan. The first place they make camp that night is Gilgal, and that's where they circumcise the men who hadn't been circumcised in the desert for 40 years. They do it again there, and then they go against Jericho and defeat it. But they go there to renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made King Saul before the Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and there they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel they rejoiced greatly. And Gilgal again was to remind them of what happened in the past at that second circumcision of the children of Israel. And that's exactly what they should have done and should be continuing to do from this point onward is to sanctify, to put away the flesh. There's nothing wrong with celebrating a victory. There really isn't. In fact, I think it honors God when we celebrate a victory. We just have to be really careful how we celebrate and that we don't let our guard down. As Christians, we can't afford to let our guard down. I've let my guard down. I get leveled every time. And it's usually when I'm feeling kind of careless. I'm not watching. I'm not watchful. I'm not walking circumspectly. I always get chopped off at the knees when that happens. And so we're going to stop there tonight. And uh, I'll have Aubrey come up, and she's going to lead us in a song of worship. And while we are worshiping, feel free to come up and grab the, um, this wonderfully hermetically sealed package of the bread and the cup. Come on up when you're ready and bring it back to your chairs and then we'll take it together. Okay? Together?